The sermon text uh, for this morning is Joshua chapter 5, verse 13 through the end of chapter 6. And we already read the passage for our second reading. You know that this passage takes place just after the time that Israel had crossed the Jordan on dry ground. And that was a significant event in the life of this uh, second generation of Israelites because it was, we might say, the second or is the Red Sea event for uh, the second generation. Now, what stood before the Israelites after they crossed the Jordan was Jericho, this very strong, fortified city. And if we think about uh, the book of Exodus and that first generation in the wilderness, you know, as as the first generation of Israel wandered through the uh, wilderness, they encountered many obstacles along the way. We recall how they encountered the obstacle of the Red Sea and how they quickly uh, lost faith in the Lord as they saw this obstacle before them. And then they encountered uh, the obstacle of a lack of food and then no water, and and the fear of the Canaanites as the spies came back and said that we are as grasshoppers before these uh, giant people. And in each of those events, each of those moments when that first generation encountered these obstacles, they quickly lost faith in the Lord. And as a result, we know that that first generation perished in the wilderness. And it's significant to think about that because now as we look at the book of Joshua and and see this second generation of Israelites, you know, they are facing similar obstacles. They're the children, we might say, of the faithless generation. And the question in the book of Joshua is, will this generation have faith in the Lord? Or will they simply repeat the sins of their fathers and of their mothers? We see that they didn't repeat those sins. Instead, they had faith. The Jordan River stood before them was their Red Sea event. Rather than not trusting the Lord, we see instead that they put their faith in God and they crossed the Jordan on dry ground without complaining and moaning and lacking faith. And then they believed that God would provide food for them even in the promised land as they entered in and began to eat the fruit of the land and God immediately at that moment stopped the manna, the manna that he had extraordinarily provided for 40 years. And we see significantly that this second generation, when they saw the Canaanites that stood before them, these giants that inhabited the promised land, they didn't fear. but Instead, they trusted that the Lord would lead them in victory. They believed that God would follow through on his word. And this is the question that is before us this morning, do you and I believe, as this generation did, that God will follow through on his word? That God will give us the victory in Christ that he has promised us? In order to answer this question, let's look first at uh, verses 13 through 15 of Joshua chapter 5, as we see this, the importance of our aligning ourselves with what God commands us to do. We read in verse 13 of Joshua chapter 5 that he was uh, near Jericho. And we can imagine that Joshua at this moment, like a good army general, he would have been planning 
uh, the invasion of the city. He would have been uh, considering how many fighting men he had. He would have uh, perhaps been thinking about what kind of weapons he needed for this uh, battle and perhaps even what kind of supplies would be needed if the battle would be prolonged. Um, and then we see that in a moment, a man appears and, and stands before Joshua, and this man has his sword uh, drawn. And what would your reaction have been in that moment if you think about a man standing before you with his sword drawn? Imagine Joshua. He didn't know if this man was part of Jericho. He didn't know if this man was sent to assassinate him uh, or if he was simply a stranger that was uh, passing through the land, the area. But he did know that this strange man was dangerous. He was a threat because he had his sword, his sword drawn and ready for battle. And Joshua asked him the most natural question, whose side are you on? Are you for us, or are you for our adversary? And we see that this strange man answered, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. At that very moment, Joshua realized who stood before him. He fell on his face, and he worshipped, asking, what does my Lord say to his servant? That was Joshua's reaction when he realized who this Person was. And we read that the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, does that command, the command of take off your sandals, for this is a holy place, does that command sound familiar to you? You might remember that it's the same command that God said to Moses. Uh, you might remember that in the book of Exodus, when Moses met God in the wilderness, and uh, when there in the wilderness God spoke to Moses from uh, the burning bush, God said, do not come near. Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And this is significant because if you remember, uh, Joshua replaced Moses as the leader of Israel. Remember that God chose Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt and, and through the wilderness into the promised land. But when they reached the borders of the promised land, God then appointed Joshua to finish leading the people. In a sense, Moses passed the baton on to Joshua. And now Joshua's encounter with this commander and those similar instructions about the sandals and, and the holy ground you know, it all pointed to the fact that Joshua truly was Israel's leader and that God was meeting with him just as he met with Moses. You know, as we think about this encounter between Joshua and the commander, even more significant is the fact that this person who stood before Joshua was God himself in human form. God himself stood before Joshua. And that's an important detail that we see in the text because Joshua had to remove his sandals just as, as Moses did when he encountered God at the burning bush. You know, this reveals that Joshua didn't just meet an angel. 
he didn't just uh, meet a prophet who was sent by God, but he was now face to face with God himself, just as Moses had been. See, if, if this person who stood before Joshua would have uh, been an angel or would have uh, merely been a, a man, uh, Joshua would not have bowed in worship. And we know that we are never to worship any creatures, even angels. Right? Even angels, as majestic as they are, they don't deserve our worship because they're created beings, just like us. We worship the Creator alone. In fact, when the Apostle John saw the great visions that are recorded in the book of Revelation, we read at the end of the book that John fell down at the feet of, of this angel. And do you know what the angel said to John about that? He said, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and with those who keep the words of this, war, uh, this book. Worship God alone. And this is why, loved ones, we know that there, between Jordan and Jericho, God himself had come to meet with Joshua. God himself had come to assure Joshua personally, visibly, that he was present with his people. And not just present with his people, but that he would go before them to lead heaven's armies to fight for his people. And if we uh, think back again to Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush, after uh, God spoke to Moses, do you remember what God assured Moses about? God told Moses to go before Pharaoh, and he said, you need to demand that Pharaoh release the people of Israel from their slavery. And if you think about what God was calling Moses to do, the task seemed impossible. Even Moses said, uh, you want me to go before the most powerful man in the world and demand that he release his entire slave workforce? I don't think he's going to go for that, Lord. And yet we know that as impossible as it seemed, that God assured Moses that he would fight for Israel. God would fight for Israel. In fact, in Exodus chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, God explicitly said, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And we know that uh, from the rest of Exodus, how God truly fought for his people. How God, not Israel, humbled the Egyptians and, and defeated all of his people's enemies. And God would do the same thing now with Jericho. With Jericho, this city that stood proud and opposed to him. And we know that through this encounter with Joshua, God was assuring him that this seemingly impossible task that stood before Joshua and the Israelites, the seemingly impossible task was possible because God would go before them. God was fighting for his people. And just as he defeated the Egyptians, he would now do the same with those in Jericho and all those throughout history 
who stand opposed to him. Now, I love the Lord's answer to Joshua's question there when Joshua asked the commander of the Lord's army. Before he knew uh, his identity, he asked, are you for us or for our adversaries? And we see that the Lord replied, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now, why, why did he respond that way? Why didn't the commander simply say, Joshua, I am on your side? Well, because, loved ones, the question for all of life is not whether God is on our side, but whether we are on God's side. Whether we are consistently, daily, moment by moment, aligning ourselves with God, aligning our thoughts, our desires, our motives, our will with what God demands of us. Not trying to corral God into doing what we want him to do, but constantly seeking to be on the Lord's side. You know, in life we can easily start pursuing things that are not pleasing to God. And we can actually uh, delude ourselves into thinking that God is pleased with us, uh, into thinking that he's on our side. And we, we have an agenda, we have our own plan, and we think that, hey, we are leading the way. And, and as long as we can find some kind of spiritual reasoning for what we're doing, we, we go for it. Think of David, who, if you recall, wanted to build the Lord a temple. As he looked from his house, David saw the tabernacle of the Lord, or the tent of meeting. And David thought to himself, you know, I'm living in this nice, luxurious house, and look at God's house. Look where God dwells. It's a tent. I, he said, I am going to build him a beautiful temple. We know what David's mistake was, wasn't it? He, he rushed ahead without seeking the Lord's will first. God did not want David to build him a temple. See, David had to learn to follow God. David had to learn to be on God's side rather than to try to get God to bend to his own will. And that's why, loved ones, we need to constantly be aligning ourselves with God and, and to be following his leading and guiding, his leading and, and guiding that he provides primarily in his word, in the Bible. You know, the way that we can know if we are on the Lord's side is if we are doing what God has commanded us in his word. Are you, this morning, following his ways? Or are we following the course that we think is best? Or perhaps the course that this sinful world has set before us? The Lord is, is asking each and every one of us here this morning, whose side are you on? The next thing we notice in our passage is that we are to trust in God's message, uh, methods, trusting in God's methods, verses 1 through 20 of Joshua chapter 6. As the seeming impossibility of Israel being able to overcome Jericho is described there in chapter 6, verse 1, that Jericho had shut the gate and was so completely closed to the Israelites that no one could go in or out. It was a seemingly impenetrable city. 
But then we read in verse 2 that the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand. God is saying the thing is sure. God is going to give the victory to Israel, but the victory is not going to come through military might or through uh, human ingenuity. It's going to come through God's appointed means, through God's appointed method. God, we see, gave Joshua the following instructions, verses 3 through 5. Uh, you shall march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people and charge straight into the city. We see that the emphasis in these verses and in these instructions that God gave Joshua, the emphasis is on the Ark of the Covenant. Because it's mentioned ten times in Joshua chapter 6. It's not Israel's swords that are mentioned. It's not Israel's weapons or its military might that is emphasized. It's the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God. What was the Ark of the Covenant? We know that it was God's throne on earth. It was God's throne on earth. It was a very ornate uh, wooden chest overlaid with pure gold. And inside of it were two stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. Inside was also Aaron's staff that budded and a, a golden urn holding some manna. And on the lid of the ark, were two golden cherubim. They were angelic-looking creatures with their wings outstretched over the mercy seat. And with faces that looked downward with reverence and with awe. And it was from here, from between these two cherubim, that God would speak to Moses. Now the ark, the ark which represented God's presence with his people, we see was now the centerpiece in this march against Jericho. That God, the commander of heaven's armies, he was the focus of this victory. God purposely designed the victory to happen in this way because he wanted the whole world to know that it was not human power again or, or human ingenuity that would bring down these walls, but it would be God alone. And, and by employing this strange method of overtaking the city, Israel was learning to trust in God because this method seemed foolish. It seemed foolish, I'm sure, especially to those inside Jericho. Imagine them watching the Israelites simply marching. There was no battering rams that they were holding. They were, weren't holding powerful weapons. They were... Probably those in Jericho were probably expecting a siege immediately after Israel had crossed the Jordan River. We read about the fear that those in Jericho had after they heard that Israel had crossed the Jordan River. But even at that moment, God told Israel to stop and to worship him, to observe his sacraments. 
And now, at this point, rather than trying to scale the walls of Jericho, the inhabitants of Jericho were watching as Israel was marching silently around. And they did that for six days without saying a word. And then we read about what happened on the seventh day, the culmination of it all. Joshua chapter 6, verse 15 and following. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at that seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Now that phrase, shout for the Lord has given you the city, it's a key phrase in the text, because it reveals that it was God who brought down the walls. And, and he used this strange, uh, a seemingly foolish method to do it. Why? Why did God choose such a strange, seemingly foolish method for victory? Well, it was so that there would be no doubt about who brought down those walls. See, he did it this way in order to enhance his own glory among his people. See, if Israel had scaled the walls and somehow managed by force to take the city, Israel would have been tempted to be proud of their own victory and to boast and brag in their own strength. But this way, uh, this way God alone received the glory for Israel's victory at Jericho. The marching trumpets we know, uh, the marching trumpets and, and the, the shouting and, and all the things that Israel did at the moment that God uh, commanded them, those things could never on their own have brought down those walls. It was, in fact, a supernatural work of God. See, what seemed foolish and weak in the eyes of the world was actually a demonstration of God's might and of God's power and of God's glory. And we see this demonstrated most wonderfully in the cross, which was the ultimate tool of God's salvation. Now, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that to the world, the cross seems foolish. It seems as foolish as an army marching around a city thinking that that alone will cause walls to collapse along with shouting. The cross in the eyes of the world, seems just as foolish. What is the cross in the eyes of unbelievers? Well, it's the emblem of suffering and shame. See, to the Jews, it was a thing to scoff at because the cross was a sign of weakness. And they wanted signs and miracles and, and demonstrations of power. And the Greeks, they thought of the cross as something foolish because it didn't make sense. The Greeks prided themselves as scholars and politicians in Jesus' day. This is why the Apostle Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 
beginning at verse 22. For the Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. See what many in the world, what many in the world dismiss as foolishness? Atonement for sin? Come on, really? What many in the world dismiss as foolishness is actually a demonstration of God's power and glory. Why did God choose to accomplish our salvation in this way? It's so that no one may boast in his sight, so that we know, loved ones, that it is not of ourselves, but it is all of God. This is why when, when John saw that heavenly sight of worship as the heavenly host and those in, saints in heaven were worshiping the ascended Christ, we read in Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 through 13, listen to the glory that this multitude gives to Christ. John writes, Then I looked again, and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne, and of the living beings and the elders. And they sang in a mighty chorus, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. They sang blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Christ is the centerpiece of heaven because of what he has accomplished in his death, his resurrection, and in his ascension. And all the saints and all the heavenly host worship him for who he is. He alone receives the glory for taking away our sin because he alone accomplished it. See, God's ways are perfect. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so what remains for us, what remains for us, loved ones, is to put our faith in him. We need to trust in God's methods, most especially in his way of salvation that he has provided. We read that it was by faith that the walls of Jericho fell. It's said explicitly in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. It was by faith. And loved ones, it is by faith that we receive and rest in Christ alone for salvation. Perhaps for those of you here today who have not yet put your trust in Christ, today is your day of salvation. God has been patient with you. He has given you the knowledge of how to be saved. He has called you by his word through the preaching and through the teaching of the word that you've received. What remains for you is to repent and believe. To believe that today is the day of salvation. Because as we see in Joshua chapter 6, once the walls fell, Joshua and the fighting men of Israel captured the city. And we read that they devoted all the city to destruction. 
the destruction of Jericho, we know was God's judgment upon the city. God told Abraham, we read during our first reading in Genesis chapter 15, God told Abraham 400 years before this took place that Abraham's children would inhabit the land and that it would take that long because the sin of the Amorites, those who were at that point inhabiting the promised land, had not yet reached its full measure. You know, that passage in Genesis reveals that God was being patient with the inhabitants of the land. We read about their sinfulness in passages like Leviticus chapter 18, passages that describe the Canaanites' practice of child sacrifice and all kinds of sexual sin and all kinds of other things that were not pleasing to God. And we see that rather than destroying them immediately, uh, God chose to wait over 400 years to bring judgment upon those people. See, he was patient with them, granting them time to repent. And that's the significance of what we read here in Joshua chapter 6 about the mercy that Rahab received. The mercy that she received. Because she was the one, if you recall, who by faith in God hid the spies and trusted that the Lord would protect her and her family. And so we read that she was spared. She was saved. Do you see, loved ones, how the Lord's patience led to the salvation of Rahab? And perhaps for many other Canaanites that the scriptures don't record? Friends, the Lord continues to be patient. You know, we don't have a timeline like Abraham had to know when the judgment will come. But we do know that at this moment, we are living in a season of grace. A season in which we can hear the word preached and repent of sin and trust in Christ for salvation. Michael Horton points out that it's not as, as though Jesus, when we read about Jesus in the New Testament, it's not as though he is a kinder, gentler Joshua. But the scenes of judgment that Jesus describes in the Gospels and, and the f- way the final judgment is described in Revelation is actually far more terrifying than the judgment that came upon Sodom, that came upon Gomorrah, that came upon Jericho, and so many other cities of the Canaanites. Loved ones, the good news is that for those who put their faith in Christ, they put their faith in the one who bore that judgment in his own body on the tree, on the cross. See? And so for those who believe, there is no longer a fearful expectation of judgment. The way that Jericho stood, the fearful expectation of the judgment that was about to come upon them. But instead, for those who put their faith in Christ, there is a longing instead for the return of the greater Joshua, who will come to judge the living and the dead and to usher in his kingdom. I want to encourage you to make good use of this time of grace, to repent, to trust in Christ, and to be saved. For he says, In the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. 
today is the day of salvation.